Falsha, 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 a Khartikil. This is episode 71 of the Rebel Matters podcast and the 11th episode of the show ever since the pandemic started and we've been in lockdown. Things seem to be easing up now, this week, and hopefully that'll continue in the coming weeks. And I hope you're all keeping as well as possible, given the circumstances that we find ourselves in. This week's guest on the show is Anya O'Gorman, who's involved in several different aspects of climate change and environmental activism. I really enjoyed being a part of this episode because I got to ask Anya loads of questions and I'm really curious about climate change and where we're going with the environment. And I came to the table very much as a novice in terms of the information that I had and had loads of questions that I've had for a long time. And Anya did a really good job of breaking those down and making them as understandable as possible. And I was actually buzzing after we had the conversation here because things just seemed to make more sense. We talked about the big picture and the environment on a global level. We went down to national level, local issues, and all the way down to what we can do as individuals to help with like making positive climate change and not just making sustainable choices when we're in the shop shopping centre, but what we can do as individuals to impact bigger change as well. A change on a on a grander scale, I suppose, and the importance of people coming together. And we also talked about Anya's involvement in the fashion industry and how that impacts the environment and climate change as well. This is definitely a really important episode to have done and I would like to do more along these lines. And I think it's good time and also because most of us have got more time to learn about things like the climate and the environment and the big things that are happening at the minute on a global scale and a national scale and what actions we can take individually to help make you know, like the world last long, longer so we don't go extinct. It's probably safe to say that it doesn't get really more important than that. So before we get stuck into the show, I just want to say a massive thank you to everyone who has been supporting the podcast on Patreon. We hit 33 patrons this week, which is one third of the way to the target of 100 patrons. So, Gurraked Milamayga of Akartigil, if you want to become a patron of the show, then you can go to patreon.com forward slash rebel matters, and there's three different tiers there that are named after three of my favorite trees. And you can pick one and support the podcast for as little or as many months as you feel like. Patreon, it's kind of like a form of socialism because the project is funded by the people who listen to the podcast and I'll keep making the podcast for as long as you're enjoying them and for as long as I'm enjoying making them and for as long as the lovely guests are happy to come on and share their stories and that's the way it works which is pretty cool. As usual at the very end of the episode after the outro music there is a chapter of me reading a book and the book that we're reading at the minute is Charles McGlinchey's The Last of the Name. Charles McGlinchey lived in Minchie Glen in Donegal between 1861 and 1854 and the book is kind of his recollections of his life and stories that have been passed on to him by his parents and his grandparents about what life was like in and around that area at the time. It's a really nice window into a time gone by and also a very nice record of how life changed over the course of that hundred years or so up there and if you want to hear the very first chapter of that book you can go back to the end of episode 67 so 
chapter six is at the end of this episode. Let's get stuck into this conversation anyway. And I just want to say a massive thank you to Anya for being a guest on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. And keep her lit. Buen salt. I've been involved in environmental activism for like maybe like eight years now um, and I started that in university um, and I was quite involved and then now I'm involved in, I work for Friends of the Earth um, and I help coordinate the Stop Climate Chaos Coalition um, and within that my role is activism support officer so that means that I try and work with grassroots to see how we can support them with our resources um, and how we can amplify their asks. And also when we have um, things that we're trying to achieve, if we, uh, also that we have a relationship with them so we can give our policy expertise to, to grassroots activists, if that's helpful. Um, on the other side, then, um, I also uh, have a part-time job as a model. And so I'm also involved in a group called Model Activist. Um, and that's about just looking at the world we live in and the fashion industry and how uh yeah looking like looking towards a more sustainable world and fashion industry as well um so yeah how did you end up getting involved in things to do with the climate change and stuff in the first place um it's a funny story well i suppose when i was um younger i would have not really cared that much like i grew up in the middle of the countryside in Tipperary. So I grew up under mountains, like in this tiny village. Um, and so I've always been really, really into nature. Like I've always just spent my whole childhood running around nature. So that kind of like preservation of nature and preservation of the earth and also like the mental health benefits from being out in nature uh, are like ingrained in me. And then I, it was actually, I kind of ended up looking at like climate change when I was modeling and I was in... Uh, I was doing, I was in New York and I was doing fashion week. And I remember just seeing these like enormous sets being built for like these like 40 minute shows. And then them just like taking them down, throwing everything in the bin and just sitting there and being like, what is going on here? And I remember one day I, I saw them take a whole set down and then throw like a whole bin, a physical bin into a skip. And I was like, what is this like mass amount of waste? Like, this is crazy. And then I just started researching waste and then I got into like food waste and then I saw how food waste is really connected to, to climate change and emissions. And then I went to college after that and I got really involved in, a, in the environmental society there and then got really involved in a fossil fuel divestment campaign. And so I suppose my journey quite quickly moved from like individual actions that we all need to take to, you know, let's all like... Make sure that we don't throw bins in the bin and let's sure that we don't all, you know, don't food waste to looking at it from a more systemic perspective um, and a more system change perspective quite quickly. Um, but yeah, that's it. Here you're talking about the, <laughs> taking the sets down because it just 
popped into my head there when you were talking about that there is um, my dad has been involved in the theatre like for I suppose most of his life now like which kind of by default meant that we were involved in it when we were kids mm-hmm. but I remember helping uh, to there was one guy who was in charge of putting the sets up and taking the sets down but they must have been using the same pieces of wood for about 15 years or like un- unscrewing them all putting them in the storage then <laughs> bring it out the next year and build a completely different set with the same stuff but, the, but I mean that's that's the thing and that's a lot of the stuff that we talk about is like there's this there's this narrative that happens where it's like well you know if we you don't want us to you know you want to stop art and you want to like make things harder for people and you're like no like people are you're able to reuse stuff you're just this and it's I think it's a good narrative for like this this system and that we're in that's that's causing the like climate breakdown is that like we're so ingrained in this thing like we have to make new stuff and reuse like not reuse it and like throw it in the bin and like people don't even think of that but actually yeah, like you can reuse the same planks of wood for 15 years. Absolutely. Why not? We just need a storage space for them. Um, so yeah, like it, that's, I think it's like a really nice little like story, like those two stories actually about what this, what this issue is. You know, so Stop Climate Chaos, is that your main job? Is that like your full-time job? Yeah. And what is Stop Climate Chaos? Is it like a, is it funded by the government or something or? So Stop Climate Chaos is a coalition of organisations. So it's, I think it's now 15 years old. Um, and essentially, it's a coalition of organisations across the spectrum. So from like Troker are involved, Concern are involved. It's a coalition of development organisations and environmentally focused organisations coming together because um, I suppose, especially 15 years ago, the narrative, well, A, the narrative around climate change was not listened to at all. But also, you know, developing countries uh, in the global south are where climate change is already hitting really hard. And so it's so important to have those voices at the forefront when we talk about climate action. Um, and so Soft Climate Chaos really tries to bring in as many different voices from as many different civil society organisations as possible to then make proposals to government to coordinate actions. Um, but it's trying to make sure that the the language we use and the um, the narratives that we talk about are grounded in a loss of like climate justice, which is really talking about who's most affected. How do we help and support those who are most affected first? And like in the last couple of years, the the climate change conversation really has kind of come to the fore, hasn't it? That um, one of the things that whenever, I guess, just in general, of just kind of trying to listen to the conversation and be a part of it. There's a lot of voices there and a lot of different stories, which is kind of one of the reasons that I was really interested for us to do the podcast together because I wanted to kind of speak to someone who would say, okay, look, according to the, say, the coalition that I'm a part of, this is how we see the state of play at the minute. Mm. And so have you guys kind of got that kind of analysis that that you you just kind of share with people? I mean, do you mean the state of play in Ireland, the state of play globally? Um, well, I guess let's start globally first anyway. And say, <laughs> okay, we can give it a go. Um, I suppose overarchingly what we always say, which is which is what, um, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners and you know Greta Thunberg, who's the uh, founder of Fridays for Future, um, is this mantra of unite behind the science. So there is science there. Um, there was an IPCC report that came out two years ago, the um, international IPCC. Uh, I'll get blah, blah. 
International Panel on Climate Change. Anyway, it's a UN body. Um, God, I really should know that. Um, and that that report basically was looking at how long do we have before we reach like irreversible tipping points. Now we're already reaching irreversible tipping points on climate change, but that report really like grounded for the first time in scientific certainty that if we don't reduce our emissions globally um, by like more than 50% by 2030, we're heading for a two degrees level of warming. And we're currently at one degree level of warming and we're already seeing lots of um, like knock on effects across the world. So we're seeing more droughts. We're seeing even in Ireland, you know, we're seeing more storms. Um, weather is getting more more frequent and more intense, uh, like big weather weather systems. And so I suppose one of the key things is this idea of uniting behind the science and going, this is how much we need to reduce emissions by, and we have to do it because that's what science says. Um, one of the things that we've been kind of looking at recently is this like how we've reacted to the coronavirus and how we've listened to scientists and how we've really, you know, governments for the main part have listened to the scientists and gone, okay, we're listening to you now and this is what we're going to do. And that hasn't been the case for climate change. Um, and we're already seeing the knock-on effects of climate change. I mean, I'm, I was at the UN last um, July and I met a girl from the Marshall Islands and she was like, look, I wake up in the morning sometimes having nightmares of my island being submerged in water and you know the place where my grandmother used to go to swim on the beach is not there anymore you know and and I think in Ireland we you know you hear those stories a lot I mean I remember hearing those stories as a kid but it's really really affecting people it, it is true it is happening and um, we're seeing migration we're seeing so many climate related issues um, and the key thing that we're talking about is this, you know, we have to get governments to listen to the science and actually take actions to reduce emissions in line with that. Now, on the other side of that is the social equity part. And you've got kind of two big key issues. You've got global equity and you've got national equity. And nationally, you know, we have to look at, well, what is what is going to happen to people who work in those um jobs, which are currently, you know, focused on fossil fuels. So the peat workers in Bordnemona is a big one. Um, and some of the issues behind that are is because governments haven't, 10 years ago, you know, there was a, in Ireland, there was a, a proposal that went to the government that said, we need to think about Bordnemona workers now. They're going to, because this is what the science is saying 10 years ago, they are going to have to move away from fossil fuels. We're going to have to give them other opportunities. And government didn't do that. Um, and that's happening globally, where governments haven't taken action fast enough to think about what is going to happen to workers as we are forced to take the transition. Um, and so that's one of the, the kind of national questions is like, how do we do this in a just and equitable way? How do we make sure that when... Um, that, that people's homes are warmer so their fuel prices aren't super high as carbon taxes come onto them. Um, um, you know, how do we make retrofitting programs uh, affordable to everyone? How do we make sure that social housing is retrofitted? So that's the national question. And then the international question is, it's, it's a massive one of equity where, you know, we, we have a global carbon budget. So that means that globally, we have to reduce emissions um, by 2030 by 7.6% over what we are at at the moment. But there's like this, this idea of um, fair share. So because we're in 
a country and a lot of global north countries would would fall into this. We're in a country that has polluted a lot over the last few years and we're in a country that's rapidly industrialized um, and we're in a global north well-developed country. There are some countries who need to develop um, but we're saying to them, no, you cannot develop with fossil fuels. You have to start developing your renewable energy. You have to start being energy efficient. And the only way that they are going to be able to do that is if we pay them, is if we actually physically give them the money. And that's this idea of climate finance and fair share. So it means that we have to reduce our emissions faster than other countries. And also we have to put into this pot of climate finance, which is coordinated by the UN, to say, you know what, we recognize that you need to move away faster and you're also trying to develop your economy, develop your jobs. Um, and so we have to pay them. We have to pay them to develop renewable energy. Um, and that's that's difficult, you know. Um, and I'm not I'm not a climate science expert or a climate uh, climate finance expert. Um, but but it's 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 one of the biggest nitty gritty things that that people are going to have to drill down to. But those are kind of the three equity things that we have to look at. So do you guys kind of look at an international level and also on a more national kind of front? So I suppose we look at we mostly work on a national perspective we often um work at an eu level um we would input to like eu or so position papers that are going to the eu from like a coalition of um Euro european uh climate ngos um but then we have members in the south climate coalition who work uh, in the glo global south countries um, so they would be very much looking at it from a from an international perspective. And then we often send people to COP, which is the Conference of the Parties, which is the massive uh, UN meeting that happens every year on climate change. And at that level, um, many of our members would be advocating for um, climate finance and international uh, action. But but one of our big things is looking at like we need to reduce our emissions faster than many other countries. And that's already an international question that's was the next question i was going to ask you so you mentioned the fact that for a successful kind of transition to more sustainable energy sources and stuff like that 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 workers are going to have to transition over to other ways of making a living and move away from fossil fuels what are the other main issues that we're currently facing in ireland with regards to cl climate change i mean at the moment like that's one of the big ones um i think the increased amount of like extreme weather um that we've seen over the last few years with storm ophelia with the the snow you know we've seen an increasing amount of, of extreme weather it also looks like this summer is going to be pretty hot again um and that's i mean we can see that already affecting farmers you know we had a drought two years ago that was hu like hugely affected farmers and and the thing about climate change is our climate breakdown is that it's the increased frequency of these events. So lots of people say, sure, we had a drought in, you know, 86. And like, yes, we did have a drought in 86, but we didn't have a storm followed by a mass of snow, followed by a drought, followed by, you know, it's that increased frequency. And, and we, you know, we've already seen that there's, I, I don't know how much money um, has to be has had to be spent on regenerating Donegal after the huge storm. Um, there's the farmers, uh, people along the coast are being affected, Um so, so there's there are those like very practical things. Um, and then the big one is, you know, the EU are going to come down on us with fines, you know, for not reaching our targets. Um, and that's going to be tough on us. So we've got that kind of like 
incentive to, and, and there's a reason that they're going to come down on us with fines because we haven't reduced our emissions the way we said we would. Um, so that's that's a taxpayer issue. Um, and then there's just things like, you know, like I was saying earlier about like warmer homes um, and, you know, if fuel prices probably going to increase if we stay on fossil fuels so how do we support people to actually move off fossil fuels um one of the big things that i know friends of the earth are looking at is this idea of community energy so the idea that communities should own their own energy or their own renewable energy so you could have solar panels on a school and during the summer months those solar panels the school isn't using the energy from the solar panels so the community actually owns that energy and can use it um within the community, which makes it much cheaper and much more affordable. And it kind of it's quite like a justice focused way of looking at how we use our energy. You know, the sun is everyone's. So how do we and the wind is everyone's. So how do we make sure that energy is taken out of the hands of big um, corporations and put into the hands of communities? You know, as far as the extreme weather events that we've been experiencing over the last number of years. So Mm -hmm. it's definitive like that those extreme weather events are happening because of a negative change in the climate and the environment, aren't they? Is that, is that, is that standard? Like everyone should understand that on a very base level. That's why these things are happening. So what I'm going to say is I am not a climate scientist. And I also know that there is a certain amount of time that we have to wait after a series of extreme weather events before they can look back. Climate scientists and meteorologists can look back and say, yes, that was caused by climate change. Um, I would really, really recommend looking up videos by Professor John Sweeney because he goes through these things really well. Um, But what I can say is that they are increased and that is like one of the indicators of climate breakdown is there is an increase in the frequency of extreme weather. And we have certainly seen an increase in the frequency of extreme weather. So, you know, Met Aaron you know, I think during storms and stuff, Met and actually often come out and they say, look, we can't say that this is climate change. Um, and they would have. But the reason is, is that they like scientists never want to say something and it not to be true. And especially with climate change, because there's so much climate denial that if they say something, the climate deniers will be out there ready to get them. But it is certainly true that we have had an increase in the frequency of extreme weather over the last few years across the world. And it's certainly true that that is an indicator of climate breakdown. Um, so take from that. <laughs> also, though, whenever I'm thinking about those things, I'm like, well, I mean, let, let's just say that you take the gamble and say that it's not because of climate change. Like, if you're wrong, then we're all going to be dead. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's let's imagine gamble. that it is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose you could kind of relate it to like it's and I'm being very careful here to not say that uh, like lots of people are suffering right now with coronavirus. And, and there's a lot of we're being very careful about not to equate the climate break, climate breakdown and coronavirus, even though the climate crisis is a huge crisis as well. Um, but this is very immediate for people. But, you know, imagine if the government had said, well, yeah, there's a few people sick. Sure. Um, and we can see that it's spreading. Sure. And we can see that there. And we know that these are indicators and we know that a cough and a fever is an indicator of coronavirus. But we're not 100 percent sure that it's going to, you know, be that bad in our country yet. So let's just like wait it out. You know, we don't really want to. We've seen what happens when 
governments say they don't really want to close down the economy and they don't really want to, you know, have these big impacts um, because we're not sure what's going to happen. So it's the same thing, exactly what you're saying with, with climate change. You know, we might as well take it seriously and do our best to to, to stop it um, or at least mitigate for it um, and put protection in place for people. And that's the key thing, like putting accept that this is is real and let's put protection in place for people and let's do our best um, to try and mitigate this, mitigate for this and adapt our country and adapt our, our world so as we can uh, deal with this in a, in a just way. I kind of get the sense that the, the whole debate and conversation around climate change is one that it's kind of littered with, like you say, like governments or or um, <clears throat> people who are in positions of authority are often afraid to put to say something real definitive. So there's a lot of information out there and really a large part of the responsibility like, is kind of falling back on individual citizens or pe- groups of independent people. And that's kind of what we're after seeing with um, like the um, Extinction Rebellion and with mm. the, the whole movement that built around kind of Greta Thunberg's thing. That was kind of like, it, that's their school kids that are taking kind of the responsibility and taking taking the fight to, to the street as such. Yeah. Um, the thing that you mentioned at, at the very beginning, which uh, I'm really interested interested to ask you about, was you mentioned that kind of made the comparison between how there's been a really immediate reaction to the coronavirus, pretty much when you compare it to the reaction that we've seen to climate change and stuff like that. Mm. Why do you think that is? Because it's an immediate threat, um, definitely. I mean, climate change is nebulous. You know, climate change is this big issue in the sky that, especially in Ireland, we haven't seen that much of. Um, It's very hard to see how it affects you personally at this moment. You know, I will t- like there's days I go out and I'm like, Do you know what? I just am not going to recycle my cup. And I'm 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 uh, I'm very pro systemic change, not necessarily individual change. But there's some days you're like, Do you know what? I'm just going to go and have a good time today. You know, I'm not going to think about climate change. And um, whereas coronavirus is so it's here and it's affecting like everyone knows someone who's being affected by it. And and also, you know, it's 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 real like we've seen the pictures like we've seen how it can decimate like Italy we've seen how it can decimate whole countries and people and it's and it's it's really like it's affecting people and i think that's why that's why we've seen this this massive uh reaction to coronavirus and and that's totally like that's totally valid um and i think climate change is a harder thing to grasp um, and also when you do grasp climate change, it can be very overwhelming. Um, and that's what we've often seen is some people get climate change and they just shut down. Like it's it's so big. It's such a massive issue. It's it's existential at a level uh, even above um, coronavirus. And that's really hard to deal with. Um, and then I also think there's the issue with governments of because it's so large and because people don't react to it in the same way as they have to this like issue where I actually physically might get sick. My loved ones actually physically might get sick today or tomorrow. Like they don't want, governments don't want to have the potential that they're going to lose votes. They're going to slow down, you know, they're going to have to make difficult 
choices. They don't want they don't want to have to do that. They want to continue, you know, people being happy, thinking that their country is safe, thinking that everything is generally okay. And and once you start accepting climate change, it's quite difficult to do that. Now, I just want to caveat this with on the other hand, our perspective is a lot of the things that you could do to mitigate for climate change would actually make, you know, life easier and better for people like, you know, warmer homes and community energy and these kind of things I was talking about earlier. But governments don't want to have to make those difficult decisions um, and they're scared to. Um, but but it's easy because for a lot of voters, up until like the last couple of years, especially, it's not top of their priority list um, and it's too big and too nebulous. So, yeah. Do you think that there's a resistance to bringing in like really meaningful change with regards to our greenhouse gas emissions and stuff like that there because of the fact that there are so many very powerful business interests vested in the fossil fuels and in keeping things the way they are? Yes, absolutely. Like 100%. Um, you know, like one of the big, one of the big fights um, that the environmental uh, movement in Ireland has at the moment is is in Kerry against an LNG terminal. So what LNG is, is it's liquefied natural gas. And that's gas that has been fracked in the US. And fracking involves drilling into the, into the bedrock and releasing out gas and capturing that gas. And it's really, really damaging for a community. So damaging that actually in Ireland, we banned it. So there was supposed to be fracking in Leitrim and we banned it because every party said, no, it's too dangerous. Um, but in the US, they're drilling away gung-ho um, so it's very dangerous for those communities and and then it gets brought across in, in huge tankers in it's liquefied brought in huge tankers across the ocean and they want to build a terminal in Kerry off the Shannon which and one in Cork uh, where the gas would come in uh, be deliquefied and turned into gas and then pumped to Europe so we would be kind of like a hub for a new fossil fuel infrastructure for Europe which is a crazy but and that wouldn't it would not be it's it's locking us into gas, which is like we just can't do that. We don't have enough uh, carbon budget. We have to be moving to renewable energies. But but to answer your question, one of the big things and I to, I come from a rural area and I completely appreciate that rural Ireland is decimated and rural Ireland needs opportunities. Um, but the lobbying that has been done in that area by the big fossil fuel um, interests to um, tell the local community that there's going to be so many jobs in this and it's going to be so good for the local community is insane. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, it's not fair. Um, but that also means that at, at government level, you know, we have, we see that the Fine Gael in the last government pushed through planning um, for this in a quite an undemocratic way. Um, and we see that time and time again um, with the fossil fuel industry um, and different things that get passed through um, governments like uh, offshore oil exploration, different things that, that just, you know, they pass a climate emergency. And I think it was two days later, they gave out uh, oil license, drilling for oil licenses. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense. really similar to the thing that was happening up in Rossport with the Shell to Sea campaign that that kind of went ahead and that was a massive lobby from Shell as well, wasn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And like we know, like globally, like we know that the big fossil fuel companies are just like they just have so much lobbying power. They're just incredibly good at lobbying. Um, and I mean, I don't have the numbers off my head, but there are the numbers out there, uh, which just shows how much they spend on lobbying and how much lobbying they do. Um, so, yeah, like the fossil fuel interests, the fossil fuel lobbying interest is just enormous and they have no interest in going under. You know, they just they don't want to go under. Their business model is to drill and drill and drill as much as they can out of the soil, out of the earth. And they don't want to go under. And if you're a businessman, that makes sense. If you care about the environment, that makes no sense. Um, but yeah, they're going to have to go out of business. That thing that you're talking about um, down off the coast of Kerry, that's the first time that I've heard of that, which mm-hmm. probably is kind of uh, representative of the power of the lobby in the first place, that that, that yeah. doesn't become like a national story as such. Like, Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because it's a huge, it's a it's probably the biggest thing that the Irish climate movement has mobilised around since probably Shelter Sea. And now I wasn't around during Shelter Sea, so I'm not the best person to talk about that at all. Um, but this, this uh, LNG is, it's such a symbol. I think it's a great symbol of, that issue of climate justice that I was talking about earlier, because what it is, is Irish people in Ireland saying, no, we do not want to have this. We don't want to have this fossil fuel infrastructure on our island. We do not think that we should be building anything that brings, uh, that allows more fossil fuels to be transported, to allow more fossil fuels to be used, which is what that would do. But the other thing it says is we also don't want communities in Texas, communities in Philadelphia and the US to be drilled like this. You know, it fracking causes earthquakes. I'd really recommend watch it. If you look up fracking water fire, if you, you see communities in the US, they can set fire to their water because there's so much gas in it. Or they like turn on their taps and methane, so much methane comes out of their taps that they can set fire to it. Um, so so it's 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 really interesting because for the Irish um, environmental movement it is such a big battle um, and we're winning it like we really are um but it is it is a it is a big battle and it's a tough one because you're consistently up against these just massive corporations who are just trying their hardest to 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 get this uh, over the line yeah something that you've mentioned uh, mm-hmm. a couple of times and kind of alluded to again there is the enormity of the battle that has to be fought to yeah. kind of make to kind of make positive change really and what is a way that people can engage with with that kind of struggle people who might not necessarily be involved in the climate change movement per se mm-hmm. whether in their careers or anything like that where they're just kind of but they're interested in it and want to get involved in it what well, how can people do that so i suppose there's a few things um one of the things is if you have any local uh climate groups in your area i would say get involved like for me um like there's there's extinction rebellion groups across the country if you're young there's fridays for future groups across the country that's the school strikers and then often in in local areas if there's a if there's a local issue so like in leitrim there's groups in Kerry, there's groups in clare there's groups because those groups are, are fighting these specific site battle issues um and i would say you know go get involved in them one of my favorite groups is actually a group in Dublin called Dundrum Climate Vigil. And they're a group of retired people who said, you know what we're going to do? We're retired, but we really want to support the school strikers. And the school strikers, for anyone who doesn't know, um, 
leave school every Friday and go on strike because they say my future is worth more than my education and, and what's education on a dead planet. So these group of retired people go out every single Friday outside their church in Dundrum. And then often they go down to support the school strikers outside the Dáil. And they also say, look, we're here in solidarity with the school strikers. That's that's really nice. Um, if you can't join a local group, um, what I've been running for the last few weeks is these kind of like call your TD events. So what we're trying to do is two things. We're trying to show TDs um, that climate is a big issue for their constituents. So TDs are very uh, susceptible to what they're what they think their constituents want. If they think their constituents don't care about an issue, they're less likely to to vote on an issue in the doll or to to advocate for an issue in the doll. So what we've been trying to do is say, come on a Zoom call with us and call your TD with us. And we're there, we've got support for you. Uh, we've got some expert policy people and you call your TD and you tell them, even if you just say, I really care about climate change. I really want you to advocate about climate change. I don't actually know that much about it, but I'm afraid. That is extremely powerful um, when uh, politicians are are talking in the doll. Um, so we've been trying to, we've been organising things like that. And I think that's a good entry point where you both learn some of the science and you learn some of the issues. Um, you're taking a little bit of action, but it's not too much time out of your day. Um, and it is pretty impactful if... Uh, yeah, if you believe that, change comes from inside uh, the doll. How can people get on those calls if they, if they want to do that? Uh, if you follow, um, you can sign up to the Stock Climate Chaos mailing list, so www.stockclimatechaos.ie, uh, or if you follow Stock Climate Chaos on any social media. Um, we're, we always put out social media and send emails about when those calls are happening. Well, um, the thing that I think is an important thing for people to realise as well is that those kind of grassroots movements do um, do affect real change. Like, the, yeah. the, I think the biggest danger is if you're sitting at home, sitting thinking, there's nothing I can do. If they want to drill off that coast, they're going to just do it anyway. So I'm not going to waste my time getting involved in this campaign. It's like, it does affect change. And it has, it's happened in the past where we've stopped stuff like that. Oh my God. Absolutely. Like this, this, this campaign, particularly around LNG, around drilling off the Irish coast, like that, we have stopped that. LNG is frozen at the moment. I mean, these companies are scrabbling to try and get planning permission, to try. Um, we actually, what's happening now is the company that we're trying to build the LNG terminal have been stopped so many times that they actually pulled out and they're looking for another company to buy the rights to do that like it's it's so effective the the fracking ban in ireland which has had an impact on everyone in ireland like like i said fracking causes tiny earthquakes we don't have earthquakes in ireland so the fracking ban in ireland came from the grassroots like the fracking ban came from groups of individuals in leitrim who said no we are not having this it didn't come you know so joining a grassroots movement is so impactful the other thing i would say is you know from uh like I'm working with people who've been, you know, working on policy for years and years and years. And they would say that suddenly because of Fridays for Future, because um, Schools Climate Action Network, Extinction Rebellion, those big groups who've suddenly bounced up and done these mass protests, the ability for like politicians are really, really, really listening to us now. And actually what it's meant is that when 
like organizations like ours used to get two seconds on the radio. We'd just say, someone listen to us, climate change, someone listen to us. And now what we're able to say is we get five minutes on the radio. And now what we're able to say is climate change, but let's do climate change in a socially just way. We're able to be a bit more nuanced. We're able to like really fight for the the world that we want to see, not just with someone, God's sake, listen to us, the world is burning, you know? <laughs> um, so grassroots movements for me, like my job is to work with grassroots movements and like that's where that's where I believe the change comes from. And um, so, yeah, if you can get involved in the grassroots, it's also great crack to be involved in the grassroots movement. Like, go do it. It's the best crack ever. It's where you make your great friends and everyone. Yeah, honestly. See, when I think about the, the various kind of grassroots campaigns in Ireland that I'm aware of uh, over the last number of years, we mentioned the Frecken and Leitrim. And Leitrim is the least populated county in Ireland. So, yeah. It, and you could probably say the same thing for a lot of the other campaigns that it starts with a small group of people who are most immediately affected. Yeah. But at the same time, when I'm thinking about the things like climate change and the environment is, I mean, if you look at Ireland, is it a pebble in the Atlantic Ocean? If, it, if it's going to affect people in Leitrim, it's going to affect the people in Cork and in Belfast. Yeah. It, it sooner or later. And the time, yeah. this is really the time to acknowledge that fact and if there's something happening down in Kerry then it's still very important that people that outside of Kerry get involved in a campaign yeah. like that. Yeah absolutely like I think a nice example of that is there's a group in Dublin called Not Here Not Anywhere and they are based in Dublin everyone lives in Dublin but their whole concept of their activist group is that they're saying no new fossil fuel infrastructure anywhere in Ireland so they will roll in behind and they do a lot of the really kind of like hardcore nitty-gritty work of like writing policy papers writing to politicians you know organizing protests outside the doll and it means that the the people who are on the ground you know are doing that hard work on the ground but then they also have support from this this group in Dublin um, and that's so powerful to just see people across the country um, working together like there's there's uh, something that's going to become quite big in the next while is there's a fracking license in Fermanagh and that's something you know it's you know just across the border and it's going to like if they're fracking in Fermanagh it's going to affect the people in Leitrim you know it's going to affect the people so that's something that we're looking at as well and that not here not anywhere and like other groups are looking at and there's like the, the group in Kerry support the group in Fermanagh to, to, and they share resources and they help each other because we know that and, and you can expand that as well you know if there's fracking in Fermanagh that means that there's more fossil fuels everywhere so it also is going to affect that poor girl in the Marshall Islands because once that stuff is in the air you know it's affecting the whole world. Are, are environmental issues dealt with in Ireland on a, on a whole island basis or is it separated from the north and south? It's, it's separate and that's uh, kind of crazy I remember talking to someone once who was like look at the River Shannon you know, there was a big, uh, I think, gold mine being uh, in there. Um, there was a big gold mine anyway uh, in the north um, being proposed. And people were saying, look, if there's cyanide falls into the Shannon in the north, that cyanide is going out of the sea in Limerick and in Clare, you know, and that's coming all the way down through the whole country. Environmental issues do not see borders. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. That kind of whole island approach to environmental issues is important and also exceedingly difficult. Um, but that's where, like, that's where grassroots groups are so powerful and so important because, yeah, that's we really see that.
as you're saying, that it's easier for grassroots organisations to work across across yeah, the whole country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The conversation about climate change, if you, you know, I think is is a, is it fair to say that you could get engaged with the conversation about climate change and kind of maybe not have as much exposure to the big issues that we're talking about and the, the national and international campaigns and issues as well and end up being funneled down a road of like using a cape cup and stuff mm. like that and I wanted to ask you about how those two things balance because like we talked about the, the business interests that yeah. are so against change that is going to have a positive impact on the climate but then in the last say 10 years there's a massive industry after being created around sort of greener alternatives like keep cups and reusable bags and all that kind of stuff and I just wanted to ask you about like how those two things kind of balance off against each other the, the focus on the bigger pictures and also the kind of personal responsibility yeah yeah I think that's really really important to note because um, like I'll put my hands up and say when I started in environment, like when I kind of started my journey into climate action, I was full on, you know, completely into I have to have my keep cup and I have to like do be as zero waste as possible. And I have to, you know, try to recycle every single thing. And let me tell you, if you try and do that as much as possible, that is exhausting. It is exhausting. Um, and it also... I found it almost quite depressing because you do you're doing your best and it is hard because one of my colleagues has this thing where she says the rules are wrong like the rules in our country the rules in our societies are not there to help you be environmentally friendly like they're not there so you're consistently fighting you go to the super, you go to Tesco's and you say oh, I need to I want to be plastic free well there's two plastic free oranges you know and these things are important but if the bigger rules aren't there to support people to be plastic free or to support people to um, like use their keep cups or whatever, it is exhausting and it's actually mentally draining. And the impact that you have is not that big. I mean, if we are still drilling fossil fuels and pulling them out of the ground, um, the impact of using your keep cup is important. It is important. But it's not, it's a drop in the ocean. And so I think it's really important to find this, what, what I say is I do, I do individual environmental actions until the moments that I start to feel guilty for not doing it. So I will do my best. But if I go to the supermarket and I have this like wave of guilt that I'm killing the planet because I haven't brought my, you know, reusable bag, then I'm going to say, look, hold on now a second. Let's look at the bigger picture here. Uh, one of the uh, kind of in, these classic, very annoying things. So we have a, a plastic bag tax in Ireland, as we know. I think it's 15 cent now for a plastic bag. But, and, and this kind of feeds back to what you're saying about big corporate interests. If you buy a bag for life, you know, those kind of more long-term, none of that tax is, that's not, that's not under the plastic bag tax. So you spend an extra euro on like, oh yeah, like I'm going to buy this usable bag and it's great. Um, and you think, okay, I'm giving my 15 cents to the government to their environmental tax and that's nice maybe. And, and, but actually that whole euro is going straight to Tesco's. Um, and those bags actually aren't that long term. So I suppose it's just 
really important to do like do what you can because I do also think that you use your keep cup and someone goes ah oh, keep cup why are you using a keep cup like it, it does allow you to bring people on a journey so I would never say don't make an effort I would never say don't do the individual actions but what I would say is never get guilty because you're not doing the indiv- individual actions if you can't remember that the rules are wrong and try and figure out how do we advocate for the rules to be better? How do we advocate for the rules to facilitate us to live in a world where everything isn't throwaway um, and where it's normal to, to bring your cup? Um, and if you don't bring your cup, that's fine because maybe, you know, like it's and where we have, you know, less fossil fuels being drilled out of the ground. Um, it's, it's, it is super complicated, but the key thing is, don't be guilty. Um, and a lot of government rhetoric is around individual actions and making people feel guilty for not doing individual actions and saying like a lot of the stuff that we would hear from government in the last few years is, but people don't want this. Like if people wanted this, if people wanted us to make change, they'd tell us. If people wanted us to make change, they'd all be using keep cups already. Well, keep cups are 15 euro. Like maybe you can't afford a fucking keep cup, you know? Um, but they use that rhetoric to make people feel guilty for not doing it, to make it seem like it's your fault that climate change is happening. It is not your fault that climate change is happening. It's Shell and Exxon who knew, you know, in 1975 that drilling out of the ocean was going to cause climate change. It's not your fault, but you can do your best because that's the situation that we're in and you can see where you can advocate for the rules to be better. Um, and for us to stop certain industries. Like, I'm so glad that we're having this conversation now for the very simple fact that like it's kind of resonating with a lot of things that I had in my head just from a personal point of view about like and you know, like at the house like we make the effort to have as little waste as possible and do the recycling and stuff like that and the things that that kind of the balance between the bigger pictures and the smaller pictures I kind of got over the last number of years, and I've kind of really got the sense that, and this is just from a personal opinion mm-hmm. point of view more than anything else, that the whole drive towards, like, for example, like the Keep Cup, to, to use that example, in a way, like, it's kind of, if it is true, like, it's a very convenient way to distract people and put the blame back on individuals for yeah. the fact that, like, you you're making people feel guilty that they're destroying the world because they're not using the reusable bag. But then the other thing that I was thinking before is like how many paper cups, like, and this is just me like daydreaming, thinking when I was sitting drinking a cup of coffee out of a keep cup one day, I was like, how many paper cups, the energy that it takes to make a paper cup, like how many paper cups worth of energy are there to make one keep cup? Because like a keep cup's like, it's not really for life. You're going to throw it away after a year or two anyway, probably. Or it's going to break or something is that is is there a thing there where like i definitely i know um, i actually have a colleague who works on a plastic and anti anti-plastic campaign called sick of plastic um and it's a pretty cool campaign because it links fossil fuels all the way to from until from when they drilled out of the ground made into plastic and then end up in the ocean um and she she'd be able to give you better stats on this i do think that the um the energy it it, it do, like key cups do make sense basically they are better for the environment um than 
Now, it, again, things are changing. Now there's more compostable cups. Uh, plastic Paper cups used to be lined with plastic. They're less likely to be like that anymore. Things are changing a bit. The Keep Cup is definitely better. Um, but again, you know, it does come down to can you afford it? You know, is it fair to be stigmatizing people if they can't afford a keep cup? Um, you know, there's there's all these other different factors, I think, that come into it um, around what's fair to ask people to do and, and what can people afford to do? And um, is environmentalism just turning into this like, yeah, it's so nice. Like I can afford my keep cup and I go to my nice coffee shop and, and I'm doing my bit for the environment. And that's great. And I don't use a paper cup and I'm fab. Um, and I mean, that's not fair to to people who maybe can't afford to do that. Um, and it becomes it becomes two things. It becomes a trend, which is environment like <laughs> trying to save the planet is not a trend. It's it's something that we have to do. And it also becomes a, a I think it's very easy for people to be disillusioned. Like you're sitting there going, well, is this actually worth like is my key cup actually worth the paper cups that I'm giving up? And I'm actually I actually personally me like me on you personally, I don't think the coffee tastes as good out of a out of a. Uh, a keep cup as it does out of a paper cup, you know. Um, but people do get disillusioned because, like, well, the planet's still burning, you know, and I've used my keep cup all year. What the hell? This isn't fair. Um, so, and then I think you can get bogged down. You can get pulled into trying to figure out, is this keep cup, you know, if I if I used 10 plastic cups, would that be the same as a keep cup? And a like, bigger picture, uh, you know, your keep cup is great, but it's not saving the planet what's saving the what's going to save the planet is is stopping big corporations uh drilling is stopping overconsumption is is stopping um is reducing our use of energy is reducing our use of fossil fuels um that kind of aside from aside from the battle to um help more positive change for for the climate like there is an inherent value in not having a lot of waste in your life and not having a lot of like overconsumption, like you say, just from a personal point of view, that it's just a, le- a much less of a personal burden and a personal trail behind, mm. which yeah. I think is it's kind of like I suppose that's kind of the way that I kind of rationale my own efforts to have less waste or to get things that are going to be able to use way more often than the things that are just one one time use and throw them away is more like well, it just feels better. Yeah, and therefore, that has benefits in in of itself. Yeah, exactly. Like it's it's if something feels good to you, like you know, and in, in that kind of respect, like do it. Like I I often think of like you know, so many people are obsessed with like Marie Kondo and like this like minimalistic uh, space and this like clean like that's that's part of this. Is this like you know reducing our consumption is so important and and reducing it in a way you know and again environmentalists always get pitted against you know okay so you just want no one to buy anything you want no one to have any fun we're all going to wear hemp and go live in a cave right well no (laughs) you know uh you can reduce your consumption and actually have a lovely life like you can have a great time um and i think you know if we look at now, again, being very careful to to not say that coronavirus has been a positive, but I think for a lot of people, slowing down um, and the people are starting to do a lot of creative stuff and stuff that doesn't necessarily produce waste and doesn't ne- and consuming a bit less. Um, and I think a lot of people that I've been talking to are slightly more, maybe not happier, but maybe more a bit at peace. Um, and it's that kind of thing of like, 
what are the things that we are doing that are bringing us some kind of peace and joy and 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 what are the things that we're doing us and are they very are they actually helpful like overconsumption um you know wasteful behaviors and things are, like are we actually happy doing them um I think it's just interest it's I, I don't know obviously like we're we need to like look back at this time um but I think it'll be interesting to see uh what what has made people feel like what 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 good things have have people found for themselves that come out of this um personally, and, and, sorry go ahead no no please go ahead yeah, personally, yeah. I, f- I found that like just to um touch on what you were uh, mentioning there about like slowing down and stuff is that I've had way more time inside the house and therefore have noticed things that have been lying around or things that have just kind of been accumulating and been able to just kind of like get rid of some stuff or hand some stuff off or throw it away or whatever that stuff that was just sitting there like rubbish or whatever yeah and I think maybe like and I I think if there's one thing that even from doing the podcast with people been if we doing um maybe two of them each week since we started the lockdown is everyone is in a different situation basically like with the lockdown people Mm. have some people are living on their own some people are with families and some people are looking after other people but I think that from a personal point of view having more time is definitely something that gave me more opportunity to be kind of more aware or something like that so that awareness then transfers over to kind of try to be more positive to make take more positive kind of personal actions for the environment I guess yeah and I think another thing to about this kind of time as well is like a lot of what we would talk about environmentalism is where what are the things that we do that are low emissions like how do we reorientate our society and our economies to like low emission work Um, and one of those big things is care work and we've seen how important care work is during this time and, and how we should be valuing care work and the work and um and that's a very low emission missions job um and so w- w- it's thinking about like where in society are we putting our values you know where like where in society are we thinking about the the value that we're creating and the value so you know we're seeing the how important it is for artists how important it is for um you know singer songwriters um that kind of like that's fueling us that's bringing us through this pandemic artists are bringing us through they're usually quite low emissions um carers are bringing us through this pandemic like what is it that we what is it that we need what is it that like fulfills us actually most of the time it's that kind of like low emissions work um and it's just you know interesting to 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 think about i mean there's lots of people who've written about this kind of stuff um I'd say Kate Rayworth Donut Economics is a great one to think about is, you know, what's what's fair and what's within our planetary boundaries, what's good for people and what's within our planetary boundaries when we think about economics. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff to kind of like sit and, and, and think about um, from what we've experienced in this time. You definitely noticed that thing with where the, the curers and the nurses and people who are working in hospitals who a lot of the time have fought for better working conditions and better money have been the, the they're they're the people who are keeping society together like the people who work in yeah. the shops and stuff as well like the, yeah exactly yeah um if you have time i'd love to ask you about the stuff that you're doing with fashion yeah um so what kind of work are you doing in that area at the moment so um what i like i work every like i do basically this group that i'm involved in the model activist group is a group of um different models from across the world who look at 
like lots of various aspects of sustainability within the fashion industry. But one of um, and I kind of pop in and out of them. But one of the big things that they look at is they look at sustainability and workers rights across the entire fashion chain. So across from workers who are actually making the garments all the way up to models who are like wearing the garments and and the, the rights um, and sustainability of of like models as workers um, and it's really interesting so I mean one of the key things is you know if you're looking at uh, factories where garments are being made like it's it's very very polluting it's there's lots of dyes that go into rivers go into people's lungs their workers rights are obviously are usually quite bad and um, so long hours cramped factories um, and one of the things that we've seen with coronavirus is this mass and that one of the things that model activist community has been working on um, is this a lot of the big companies like P- pennies h&m zara basically initially just pulled like had done lots of orders to uh, specific uh, particularly bangladesh which bangladesh the vast majority of its economy is based on making clothes and so they had loads of orders in and they just, as soon as coronavirus came, they stopped them. And they're like, no, we're not paying you. Now, a lot of the comp- because of pressure, a lot of the companies have now paid, um, even though those orders won't be fulfilled and those um, clothes won't be made by the workers, they actually have paid the workers. Um, but the power of these like large multinational companies um, is so, uh, clothing companies is so big that they were able, and it's like, it was billions of dollars. Um, and so some of the work that we would do would be like purely based on that kind of like, um, workers' rights perspective. Um, And then also looking at, well, how do we advocate for clothes to be made in a more sustainable way? Um, And again, fashion, I would say, is like an, is, is, it's like art, like people, the clothes you wear are really important. But how do we, you know, we're in this like massive fast fashion space where people just buy clothes and then get rid of them. Like I know people who buy clothes, wear them once, throw them in the bin and like that's just it comes back to the same thing like it's as I talked about at the start it's it's crazy um you know there's someone who's made who's like in Bangladesh or you know if you're in the US a lot of clothes are made in Miami um and they've made them they've spent hours making them they've been paid shite money sorry I shouldn't, probably shouldn't purse but um and then you buy it once for you know tenor and then you throw it in the bin I mean it's just crazy so trying to change that that narrative and it is so difficult because the fashion industry is so embedded like we you might I think I always love that you know people often people say to me like I mean I don't know about much about the fashion industry I don't care about fashion I don't care about what I wear um, and there's it's there's that great um piece in the Dev Wears Prada where um Miranda Priestley says well you don't realize but you know I don't know do you know the scene I'm talking about where she <laughs> So it's worth it's worth looking up. Basically, she says, you think that you're just like you're wearing a jersey now. That's probably a bit different. I'm wearing this green top. Uh, you think that you didn't give a crap. You think that you picked that up in a charity shop and it has nothing got to do with you just picked it up. But actually, you know, in 2008, that was the fabric that was most in vogue at the time. And then, you know, Jean-Paul Gaultier made these dresses out of this and then you know you follow it along and basically you know H&M then made that version of it because that was the you know and basically just saying like the people at the top of fashion have so much influence on what we are wearing at any point and what we wear is a reflection generally of like even if you don't think it matters it does reflect on your 
on how you feel and, and who you think you are. And so a lot of the work that like it's basically saying fashion is important because fashion can be wonderful and people can really enjoy it. But how do we make sure that it's fair? How do we make sure that workers rights are um, yeah, how do we make sure that, that, that it's environmentally friendly as much as possible? It's the second biggest polluting industry in the world, fashion. Um, so how do we make sure that it's environmentally friendly? How do we pull ourselves away from this like mass consumption of, of fast fashion? Um, and one of the interesting things that people might not know is that fast fashion, which is your H&M, your pennies, um, basically they just churn out clothes so fast so they're you know those cl clothes are in for two weeks and then they've got a new range and that has a huge impact on the, the high fashion designers who are these like supremely creative people and you know like years ago it would have been that you had two three seasons a year so they would have their they would spend six months creating their spring summer collection and then they'd put their spring summer collection on the runways and everyone like wow it's amazing and then they'd spend six more months creating their autumn winter collection and now because of fast fashion, these like very creative designers and like, yes, granted, like it's too much money for clothes. I completely agree. I think it's crazy. I would never buy any. I've never bought one piece of like high designer wear, even though I've worn it. Um, but what they make is creative. But now what they've been forced to do because of fast fashion is now they're making they're making spring, summer. And then a month later, they're doing, you know, a cruise collection. And then a month later, they're doing a resort collection. And then pre-fall and then pre-spring summer. And it's just, it's just they're, they're starting to have to like lose their creative space and starting to churn this stuff out, which also means that they're not able to focus on the, like as much probably on the environmental impacts. They're not able to as much focus on uh, the rights of the people who are making these clothes for them. Um, and so it's just kind of this like slowing down of fashion um, that, that's, that's really important. Um, and yeah, and then look, just looking at the, the environment, like the environmental impact of, of all this fashion. So flying people around the world to do shoots, um, like it's just, it's just this global industry, which is supremely damaging, but is also supremely creative and very beautiful. Um, and so, well, that's just a lot of the work we do is, yeah, trying to figure out how, how do you square that circle, um, of creativity and sustainability. The food industry, like it seems like it kind of has um, a bit of quite some parallels with, sorry, the the fashion industry and the, and the food industry seem to have quite a lot of parallels in that like in say the Western cities and countries here, like that we create a massive demand for yeah. really cheap produce and then mm -hmm. that just has a knock on effect that everyone else along the line is getting exploited except for the person who's getting the profit at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the big issues with both within the food industry um, and within the fashion industry is, you know, a lot. And again, this kind of comes back to this like individual action where which doesn't always work because a lot of people would say, well, you know what, I'm just going to spend money. I don't want to exploit someone in Bangladesh um, or I don't want to buy cheap avocados from Colombia. So I'm going to spend money just buying local or just buying, you know, Irish made clothes. And that's great. But the problem is, is that how fair is it for us to have, you know, got into these, obviously not us personally, but our, our, our corporations and our, and our systems have gone into these countries and basically meant that 
their whole market, their whole economy is based on export, whether it's exporting mangoes or exporting, you know, pennies clothes. And then for us to say, actually, do you know what? We've just realized that that's very bad. That's very bad for the environment. It's very bad for workers. So I'm not going to buy any of these things anymore. Um, and so we're kind of we're entangled in this system where you don't want to pull out of these markets because you don't want to leave these people with no economies. Um, so it's 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 a really complicated thing and it's a slow process where we really have to be um, gentle. And I think this also like comes back to the thing I was talking earlier about climate finance, which is similar, which is like, you know, we've kind of made a big, massive mess and we've got to help clean that mess up. So we've got to start. And the way we do that is to give most like in fashion and food, it's a bit more complicated, but like support those countries and give them money that just says, look, we know we messed up. We're sorry here. Like, how can we support you to to get out of this? Um, and and you you decide it like there's no strings attached and um, you guys figure this out. Um, but yeah, the, the food system is exactly the same. Um, and it is important to, to at the same time, you know, food sovereignty, growing local, doing local things is also so important for climate. And um, so, you know, it's yeah. We've got ourselves into a mess. <laughs> it opens up another question that, 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 that you kind of alluded to earlier on in the chat was that if if we all do decide to only buy Irish clothes, like those clothes are going to be way more expensive than the clothes that mm. we're going to buy in the town at the minute. And then it's kind of becomes that like it becomes the preserve of people who have got a lot of expendable income in the same way that in some respects being able to buy organic food is a privilege that most people in Ireland probably aren't able to afford to do if they're trying to feed their whole family with organic food or whatever. And then, like, when I think about that, it's just mind-boggling because then you're talking yeah. about, like, what's going to have to happen to change that is, like, move away from this whole model of society that we have completely. <laughs> this is like, yeah. And, like... I had this in my mind to ask you anyway before we even got on the call, but I definitely want to ask it to you now. Is you know the way that you're dealing with these issues, even some of the stuff I know there's some of the stuff that we haven't even touched on during this chat, yeah. but like the global climate, the national issues, the fashion and like yourself as a consumer in the same way that, that we're all consumers. How do you not crack up completely think about this because they're all <laughs> such big massive things yeah um it's a it's a process I would say there's peaks and troughs um I think sometimes I just switch off sometimes like when you're working on this stuff day to day sometimes you just have to go I'm just trucking away I have I know what I need to do and you don't think about the bigger picture sometimes things just come and like smack you in the face so like uh one of my very good friends was in Australia during the fires and I had been like trucking along not thinking much about climate change working on it keeping going and then she just would be you know just telling me about like how difficult it was during the Australian fires and I was like oh my god the world is actually burning like the world is actually burning um and that can really put you in a in a bit of a funk um but I suppose the thing is, is that that keeps me going is having a lot of friends who care so much and who are working so hard on this. Um, and also, you know, there's a great there's a great thing called Active Hope, 
which is there's an active hope network in Ireland um, and they're very focused on this. They, they do trainings and things for people in the workshops and things, which is very focused on sitting there and just accepting that this is where we are. This is where we are. We, we can't change what happened in the past. We can't change that people didn't act fast enough. But what we can do is we can sit and think about that so many people are working so hard to change things and change is happening. Like if you actually sit back for a second, even the last couple of years, like the change that has come about, you know, we had our um, like Taoiseach stand up in the UN and say that we're banning oil licenses in Ireland. Now, backtracked a bit on that afterwards. My God, that would you couldn't have imagined that happening a couple of years ago. So it's really kind of like, when that happens, like really pulling back and being like, no, actually change is happening. And it's maybe not happening as fast as we want, but it is happening. Um, and then just knowing, like I've, I've just so many friends who, who work really hard on these kind of issues and also people who, you know, may not work, be working on environmental issues, but are working on in community building or are working in care work or are working in where all these things start to like, or in unions and things, and all these things start to, to come together and you can just see so many people really really working to change the world even against all the odds um and it's that thing it's like even against all the odds people keep working and people historically have kept working i mean you know in the 70s there was people doing this work and people are still doing this work this means that this stuff is worth it it means that like there's a a great um i'd recommend anyone to read this article by mary hegler um uh which is called the the greatest of these is love and basically she says look there is a love for this planet and there's a love for the people on this planet that is like fiery and can be can be beautiful at sometimes and sometimes can just be full of rage but basically we're rooted in like love and a want for things to be better and a and a knowing that things will be better and sometimes you have days where you are exhausted and you don't want to do anything and you do feel despair. But there, it's it's that thing. It's like it's rooted in a, in a love for people and it's rooted in a love for the planet. And it's also rooted in the knowledge that like lots of other people are feeling that way too, and lots of other people in whatever way they can, um, are like I often think of GAA teams <laughs> when I think when I get a bit sad. I think of how great GAA teams are and how great like the community of GAA in Ireland is and how like people look out for each other and people work together and like, you know, lads can like bait each other on the pitch and then afterwards go for a pint. And for me, that's, that's the kind of like world that we're trying to look at. Like, that's what we're trying to do. Like the whole feckin' world was like one big inter-county championship, inter-club <laughs> county championships would be great. Like, you know, um, so it's that kind of thing, knowing that those things are out there, uh, that's what kind of keeps me going. Like, yeah. When I think about it, like we have a, a project that we um, were involved in setting up out in Palestine. And when I think about the sort of the times when I'm feeling a little bit down in relation to, to mm. what we're doing or the stuff that's happening out there, it's like in direct proportion to how active I can physically be in the thing. Like when we were, when we were in Palestine, it's like you're running around and you're meeting people and talking to people. And even though like, you could be in the middle of an absolute shit show out there or whatever, but at least you're active. And then, so then it's just like, you're, you're kind of going around and you're, you're kind of like in the field as such. And then yeah. the next level down for me then is if I was doing a podcast with somebody, 
um, they were talking to them, and then you're kind of like cool, and then but then afterwards I can be like, oh Jesus, that's pretty depressing actually. And then when I'm editing the podcast is when it's really worst because you're not actually doing anything, you're not having a conversation, you're just listening to it over and over, or if you're working on the computer, and there's definitely times when it kind of like play it can play on your mental health because you're mm. involved in something that's completely way bigger, a billion times bigger than yeah. any one person or any group really like. But um, I was actually listening to a lecture that Angela Davis gave um, in, it was in Barcelona, I was just watched it on YouTube, but somebody actually asked her how, you know, Angela Davis must be like 70 odd years old now or something like that, and someone asked her, how can you keep struggling all the time? Like, how are you able to keep going? And she, because the girl who asked it was like, because we have this group and like sometimes we, we can't even get out of bed because we're just faced with this enormous challenge and sometimes we're good at struggling and sometimes we just can't even face it and she was just kind of saying well you need to be able to look after yourself like uh, she was like yeah. I do yoga and I go for hikes and um, that's how she kind of maintained her ability to keep going back to the well and like keeping her her fed going or whatever for the stuff that she believes in yeah yeah I think um the one a book I read recently called it's called pleasure activism by Adrian Marie Brown um, and I love Adrienne Marie Brown. She's like this thinker from the US and she's amazing. Um, but but one of her things is saying that like, if we're trying to create this better world, really what we want is things to be enjoyable. Like not in a hedonistic way, not in like we should be able to like spend loads of money and like, you know, it's it's about like, what are the little things we do every day that give us pleasure? And if you're doing those things and if you're doing those with other people um, with a view that like, actually doing things that make us happy that give us pleasure um is almost changing the world because you know a lot of the world that we live in now it's like go to work feel a bit sad you know keep going feel a bit guilty for not taking action on climate change blah 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 blah, blah. and she's like what boring fucking world is that you know so doing like even if you're saying look today i can't you know today i can't i can't face the big issues but you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to the park and I'm going to play football with my friend or I'm going to do some painting. I'm going to do something that is low impact, but like pleasurable. And the more and if you can show that to other people and the more people that are doing that and like taking time, taking time to rest is so important. Like rest is something that is not valued in our society and rest is something that's pretty low, low impact, you know. Um, taking time to rest, taking time to look after each other, taking time to care, taking time to enjoy ourselves in these kind of like really in these ways that are natural to us. And I think this comes down to a lot of the learnings that we've all had sitting at home um, is is so important. And that like, you know, if you're you know, that's that's also changing the world Um, it's not going to change the world immediately. But it's, it's about like a lot of changing the world is about changing mindsets as well um, and, and also acknowledging that you know the other side of that is like if you're editing a podcast like yeah it's grunt work um and it's shit at the time um but that work is also super valuable because you're doing work to try and get these ideas to other people um so i think yeah it's all about like the big flashy stuff is important but the little bits are so important too and acknowledging that i think that what you said there's uh, kind of a really powerful idea that idea of doing things that you enjoy doing and that things that are creative and stuff like that there because it's the direct opposite to what's probably the core of the problem of many of the issues that we've talked about which has been mm -hmm. like the fact that 
profit is the king. Yeah. And yeah. the opposite of that is doing something that's that's not for profit, that's for fun and for enjoyment and like that brings you outside and gets around with other people and really like if the fate is against all the negative stuff that comes from the fact that people are being exploited, then it's like one of the most definite things that you can do in opposition to that is to, to, to do stuff that's for enjoyment and for fun and with other people and creative and stuff like that there. So Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then that gives you energy to go and do the big hardcore, tackle the big issues as well, you know? So it's it's a win-win. <laughs> that's, what here, that's probably a good place to finish up. Um, so thanks a million for taking the time to chat and um, share your ideas and the, the work that you're doing. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is chapter six of the book that we're reading together at the minute, The Last of the Name by Charles McGlinchey. The first chapter is at the end of episode 67, and this chapter is called Emigration. Every chapter is kind of a recounting of life in Donegal between 18, the 1800s, basically, and the mid-1900s when Charles McGlinchey was alive and he's remembering things from his own time and from his parents and his grandparents' time as well. It's actually a class book. It's quite a small book, but there's about 15 chapters in it and this is chapter six. And it's actually it's a harder book to read than most, like reading it, reading it out loud. It's definitely more of a challenge to read than the Roald Dahl book that we read together before we started off on this one. And I think it's just because it's written kind of as it was said, if you know what I mean. Brian Freel edited it, edited the book to make it kind of a, in book format or whatever, but it's still very much kind of conversational. But uh, I'm enjoying reading it and I hope you are too. So if you want to go back to the first chapter, it's at the very end of episode 67 of the podcast. And as I was saying, this is chapter six. And it's called Emigration. In my father's time, any man or young fellow who hadn't much to do at home in the summer went to the harvest in England or Scotland to the shearing. My father never left home. He had his trade as a weaver and had plenty of time. He had plenty to do at home. When he would hear of the good wages, up to maybe a pound a week, that were to be made across the water, he always quoted a saying that the old people had, Hamian Mill or Yohadan. There is no honey on thistles, nor gold on briars in any other countries, any more than at home. The shearing in his time is done with the toothed hook, 
and men going to Scotland often took their own hooks with them. Hooks that they were used to working with. They were paid by the acre. The pay was 15 shillings an acre with their keep. They slept in the barn on the bed of straw with a blanket over them. They were out in the morning early on a fasting stomach and got oat and porridge and milk taken out to them at breakfast time. For their dinner, they got a bottle of beer and a shearer's loaf. No butter, not even a knife. They just broke off pieces and ate it that way. They had porridge and milk again in the evening, and that was the day's feeding. But they could do a great day's work all the same. Now it takes all the men of the parish two or three starts of an afternoon to cut the grass in the graveyards. What one good shearer could do in a day or two before this. Before they earned the 15 shillings, the corn had to be tied and stooked. Every man would have the bulk of £5 or maybe £10 home with him after the harvest. And that would come in handy for the rent that had to be paid in October and the cuts or the rates that were due at holiday. The rents ranged from £6 to £10 or so and the cuts were about half of that. It took a lot of of gathering at the prices things were going and wages at £9 a day. The boat fare to Scotland was four shillings. But when the dog deal was running, they cut the prices, and I heard Paddy Moore McElhenney saying that he got over and back on the dog deal for six pence a time and got a bottle of porter into the bargain. After the wars were over in 1815, lots of ones went off to America. It was all sailing vessels at the time. One of the grants of Cluck Finn went to America, and it took him three months. On the way over, he got so seasick that the crew were for throwing him overboard because he was about dead. They had a sheet of canvas spread out to roll him up in, but some Malin men interfered and wouldn't let, him, wouldn't let them throw him overboard as long as there was life in him. He lasted out the voyage and reached Philadelphia. Instead of taking work, he got a pack and soon made the price of a house. And before he died, he had a, he had a street of houses and left all to a daughter of his by the name of Gormley. At that time, it cost a shilling to send a letter to America. That was before there was any post office here. The letter had to be left in a house in Derry and would be sent on some ship to Boston or wherever it was going. It would lie there till the person it was for came to lift it. I remember myself the time the post office wasn't straight, when the people had to go there for their letters. There was no delivery like there is now. I heard too of a man called Owen McCreven, who went to America in the old days, but with the storms and contrary winds, didn't it take him half a year to make the journey? Nearly all their provisions was used up. Owen had a good store of tobacco with him, and the captain gave him a gold sovereign for a small bit he had left. The captain's supply must have run short. It was a common thing for ship to be lost at sea. They were wooden ships with sails and couldn't stand up to the storm. In my grandfather's time, in 1811, the year before he was pressed into the navy, there was a ship sunk off Dunaf Head. Big Thomas Carey of Ombui remembered the night well, when wind shifted round and dove the sh- drove the ship onto the rocks. She sank a short distance from the shore, and the mast could be seen at low water for long after. The ship was called the Saldana, and there was a song made about her. People say if she had kept out to the depths, she would have stood a better chance, but the captain said he'd make luck swilly or hell of it before the morning. In Desert Agni, that night, a strange woman came into a house and sat by the fire and spoke to nobody. At midnight, she jumped up and shouted, The Saldana's down. She made out the door and was never seen again. The morning after the ship was lost, a parrot was found in the trees above Fahan, one that must have come off the Saldana. All the parrot say, could say was, poor Saldana, poor Saldana. A neighbour of ours, Paddy Moorhawken, had seven sons, and they all went abroad in their time, except one who stayed in the home place. 
1841, when the land was, cu- was first cut up, Paddy Moore lost a good bit of ground he had and his father before him. They were given a bare bit of heathery ground and lived under a rock till they got a sod house built for themselves. The bailiffs got their pick of the good land, and in those days, if you met a bailiff and didn't touch your cap, you'd find yourself out of your farm or maybe in jail. That year the Harkins had to get a ridge for potatoes in Gortfad and one in Carrow Hill till they got some of the heather broken in. One of Paddy's sons, John, was so angry that he packed up and went to Scotland, but died in the hospital there soon after. As the sons grew up, they went to America. Charlie was the seventh son. The old people would tell you there was a cure for the evil on the seventh son. Charlie never worked at the curing, but Ono Breslin used to call him the doctor, and he wasn't half pleased about it. He was a fine strapping fellow. He could stand on the doorstep at thatching time and throw a kerchling or a queue of homemade straw ropes over the rope without touching the hatch. It would weigh three stone, good, or maybe more. He spent a lot of his time out with the dogs and gun, and had seven foxes skins in the house at the one time. One day, he was footing turf on the bank. He took a cramp and was only able to make home of it. They got a doctor from Derry, and he tried leeches to his side, but they did him no good. Then he said there was a medicine in Derry that would cure him, but he would need to get it inside four hours. So a friend of Charlie's, Johnny McDade, saddled his horse on the street at 10 o'clock. It was a moonlit night in June. He galloped the 25 miles to Derry and back again and jumped off his horse in the street as the clock in the room was striking two. The horse was in a layer of sweat and they turned him down to the garden. He lay down and stretched out his legs and head from him and lay that way till sundown the next evening. Then he got up and shook himself and started to nibble the grass. The medicine did Charlie no good and he died two days after. His two dogs hung about the house and would go with nobody else. Both, both of them were dead in a fortnight's time. They paid the doctor five pounds. He was a Dr. White. Mickey and Dennis, two other sons of Paddy Moores, went to England for a year or two and then went to America. It took Mickey three weeks and three days one time going to the English harvest. He got work on a farm there and next morning the man of the house took out a pot of porridge to the field for the breakfast. There was a hole in the porridge for each man with milk and a spoon in it. Mickey stood with his back to a tree, so the boss came back and asked why he wasn't eating. Mickey said he wanted his food right and that he wasn't reared that way. So he was taken inside and got his meals at the table from that on. Mickey always wore a white ball hat made of a sort of rubber or gutta per- percha. They were called ball hats. Next year his brother Dennis went over to the same farmhouse and when the farmer got his name he called to the wife. Here's a brother of white hats. He'll have to get his meals in the house. Dennis went to America about the year 1850. It took the ship seven weeks and three days to cross over. The sailing vessels would have to take down sails if a storm got up and they would often be blown back in one day what they went forward in three days. The vessel had provisions of some kind on board but everyone took a supply of oat and bread as well with them. The whole townland would be baking and hardening oat and bread for whoever was going away. They were baking for a fortnight beforehand. The bread would be hardened two or three times till you could walk on it. All the bread was packed in a small barrel that the Coopers made for that purpose and everyone going to America had his barrel. They used to get a batalcha, an armful of straw, a dairy kay and a bag of biscuits for a shilling. That was how the Ukrainians made their money first, selling straw and biscuits at dairy kay before they got into the whiskey trade. 
the straw was for sleeping on during the voyage. Dennis Harkin made a lot of money in Boston, but in 1857 he went to try his luck in California. At that time the journey had to be done by sea round South America. He had two companions with him by the name of Ward from the back country, and the three of them stayed at some hotel in California. One night Dennis was attacked in bed and his throat cut, but he held the men and raised the alarm. When help came, who was it but the two wards? There was a third man, but he escaped out a window. Dennis lived for four days and wrote a letter home, sitting up in his bed. The wards were arrested and the sheriff of the place said he would give Dennis the privilege of inflicting whatever punishment he wished on the two of them. Dennis said he was going where he'd be looking for forgiveness for himself and to let them go. All during my time, people kept going to America and there's not a family in the parish but has somebody belonging to them in the States. There was always a big night for anybody going away. Neely McColgan, the blind fiddler, would be sent for and they would dance till day clearing. Then too, for anyone coming home, there was always a bottle drink. But these led to so much drinking that Father Fox put the bottle drinks down entirely. Most of them all got on well in the States. A relation of my mother's, the name of Diver, from Eris, went out before my time. And sure, a grandson of his was made governor of the state of Massachusetts in 1948. Times at home were bad, and they left home with nothing but the clothes in their backs. The old people always said that good health and the grace of God were fortunate enough for any young man or young woman. <laughs>